Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host today. If you don't already know, Squawk stands for Student Questions at Calvary College. The upcoming die roll, which is now a thing of infamy, I think. <laughs> it's, it is forthcoming. So we're going to go ahead and roll that, and we're going to jump right in to see what questions we've been given to answer. Number one. Is it a one? It's a seven. Oh, it's a seven. Wow. Number seven. Have we had a seven before? I don't think we've ever had we've, a seven. Wow. And that is the number of perfection. Uh-oh. So well, let's this, see the question this first. This <laughs> question could be huge. How do I know that God is good? Great question. And particularly in today's world with so much happening around us that's not good, that is a good question to ask. So Luke, as is our principle of going forward, we usually define our terms and then give a big picture and then hone down. So goodness, theologically and systematic theology, is really connected to God's benevolence, so God's love. And of course, they are controvertible, meaning that you know because God's good, he's loving. Because he's loving, he's good. It's related to God's benevolence, his love, but it's unique in that it has effects or it's doing. So goodness is just the act of doing that which is Good. Interestingly enough, when it came to classical understanding, and this is, you know, not necessarily the Christian understanding, but Greek and Roman understanding, goodness was tied to what later became known as ethics. And so it was known as the act of doing good in the world. Biblically, though, because God is good, he's done good things, and therefore he calls us to do good things, to act in a particular way. But we find the word goodness early on in the Bible, actually, the first chapter of right. Genesis. And what God deems good in chapter one of Genesis is his creation. God created things and he said, hey, this is good. And so goodness is not only who God is, is a reflection of his emanates from him, but good is also in conjunction, works in conjunction with his creative order, be it people or creation and so on and so forth. So there's the that, again, that biblical definition that goodness is rooted in God and emanates, is seen throughout his creation, and then the classical definition of doing good in the world. So definitionally, you know, that's that's where we'd go. Anything you want to chime in before we really begin to ask answer the question of how do we know God is good? I love this question, and I, I guess perhaps I'm just sort of a sucker for things that tend toward philosophical discussion. Yep. But that being said, I remember doing a study about this several years ago. I just was caught with the subject and wanted to look at the righteousness of God, mm -hmm. which theologically is probably the closest thing to what we would consider goodness in the classical sense. and. It was a really interesting thing to find out all the different thoughts that people had about this. Mm -hmm. I was I was actually pretty shocked by some of the things that are said in the theological community, very loosely used mm -hmm. theological community, the spectrum of how they think about God. Some people went so far as to say that we shouldn't be disappointed in the fact that God is not perfect and that he's not perfectly good. Process theology, yep. And that I, I thought, well, that kind of thought's not going to really get any traction. But I was surprised at how much traction it actually had, and that much of 
those things who question or those people who question God's goodness mm-hmm. do so from some type of pain point. Right. Exactly. Even the whole idea of conditionalism, Brian, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. or the idea that hell doesn't last forever, is predicated on this idea that seems to be superimposed on God. So there's this, you've defined what the Bible says and what the classics say about good. And then there's this sort of public consensus that's definitely has a huge subjective element to it mm-hmm. that people seem to like to apply to this question. Right. I don't know exactly where the hearer is coming from or where everybody in our audience might be or who the asker, where they may be coming from. When they're saying, well, what is God good? I think we have to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what is good actually separate yeah. from, from everything else. Like what is our current working definition of good? Correct. And go from yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. And I would agree because the program is, you know, invariably, you know, you get to evil and the program and this question is not about evil, but it's about God's goodness. So I mentioned. Genesis chapter one, where the concept, the earliest book in the Bible, the earliest chapter, the concept of goodness is, is introduced. And the Hebrew of that is Tob, T-O-B. And it, it essentially just means that which is bountiful or cheerful or brings pleasure or prosperity, welfare, wealth. Um, and even has elements of, of the beautiful in there. So when you, but before you uh, hold that thought, cause I want to ask you a question that, that has direct bearing on, cause I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Do you think that we typically define good in that sense in a manner that is almost inherently selfish? If you look at the content of those words, almost, and I'm not saying this pejoratively, but in a way that's inevitably self-focused. Sure. Sure. And, and I think, you know, um, we do look at goodness a lot of times as, am, am I being good? Is someone else being good? So it, it is self-focus. And a lot of times it's interesting. Human beings <laughs> at times would rather focus or worship God's attributes than, than, <laughs> so true. than God himself. The, the totality, the simplicity, the unity of God, because God, it's not like God is, 25% just and 25% right. good and 25. God is fully, maximally all of these things simultaneously. Mm. So God is always loving. God is always just. He's a hundred percent just. He's a hundred percent loving. He's a hundred percent good. He's a hundred percent true. He's a hundred percent beautiful. So, and, and, and so what, what transmits from God, because he is a hundred percent in his unified nature, his what, classically they call in his simplicity, his, his unified self, transmits or translates, it's echoed in his creation. So, you know, that word tob used in, in Genesis, it really is taking it off of ourself ultimately and putting it back on God. It's, it's basically saying because God is good, he's created something good. Now, God recognizes the goodness of creation, and the goodness is found, you know, like I said, in the earliest chapter, in the earliest book of the Bible. So goodness is manifest. But again, in classical theology, these, these, these attributes are, you know, if God is truly true, being true is being beautiful 
and being yes. true is being good. And if something is truly beautiful in the, in the pure sense, it's also true and good and so on and so forth. So all of these attributes of God are intertwined perfectly within, within the Godhead. Mm. Um, you know, Aquinas, when dealing with, particularly in his Summa and other works, he he approached a lot of these these aspects very carefully, as you would think. You know, the Summa is not easy reading for a lot of people. Right. But you know, there was four overarching things that 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 um, that Thomas Aquinas in in his Summa and other works would would kind of concentrate. And he always looked at creation because God wrote two books. He wrote the Book of Creation first, and then he wrote inspired the Book of the Bible. But then um, what we would call a, a natural hierarchy, um, and that is the concept that um, there's a hierarchy in existence. And so, you know, a rock is at one level, uh, a plant may be at another, an animal may be another, humans at another, angelic being, and of course God is, is in that. But within God being at the, tire, the, the top of the hierarchy, his influence as the created being is found throughout all of those those other stages, if you will, or hierarchies. And then Aquinas also talked about human and divine reason and how they interact with one another, um, which was, you know, a, a very important facet of his theology. But all this to say, this isn't a, a, a lesson on Aquinas, but just to say that because God is good, his goodness is found within creation. And so what we find when we look out a tree, and you and I are at a, in a, a radio studio where we can look out and see beautiful pine trees, we see the Sandia Mountains out there, and we can look at that and go, boy, that we are seeing God's thoughts made visible. And we are. When yeah. you see a tree you're, you, or mountains, these are God's thoughts made visible, and therefore they're good. So two things on that, because I love how you articulated that. There are things that go beyond the subjective that we find so often in at least current culture that are objectively good. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the reason why I asked that original question is I think that so often we feel that good somehow is permanently subjective mm -hmm. and it biases us. And so the person asking this question, right, must first be willing to consider their own definition of what good is. If their real ask is, how do I know that God is, and they're using sort of the, the laundry basket of good, mm -hmm. all the things that I think are good, how mm -hmm. do I know that he's going to fulfill my expectations? How do I know that he's going to meet those things that I've been told about him? All of the sort of the urban legends that exist in Christianized communities about God and what he does with your life and these mm -hmm. things that are sort of extra biblical, but they're sort of nonetheless little snippets of wisdom that some people try to hand out mm -hmm. and they may or may not be wise. This, well, your definition gives somebody something objective to look at that's outside of themselves, that's not experiential in and of itself. It's yeah. inherently good. And yeah. I love that about it. And I want to say this, this next part, if we are able to be biased through our own personal experiences about what good is, and we can see that there is objective good, then how is how is that supposed to be processed? How do we connect the evidenced good of God in the objective world into the subjective world? 
do we do we need to not only expand it to include objective things, but do we need to really be willing? I'll just give this because I I don't want to get too convoluted. In my logic 101, back in my undergraduate days, I loved the way that the professor opened it up with. And he says, he gave everybody a quote on their desk. Half the class had a quote. The other class had, or the other half of the class had a quote. Now, the quote was the same, but unbeknownst to the majority of the class, he had attributed half of the class's quotes to Adolf Hitler and half of the class's quotes to Abraham Lincoln. And his ask at the class was, is this a true statement? Mm-hmm. Getting to the idea of bias, where because of personal experience, personal understanding, or what we would call argumentum ad hominem, the mm-hmm. evil of the individual, mm-hmm. biased the person from being able to see whether or not that statement was actually true. Right, right. Do you feel like some of that happens with the good that's in the world where we get hurt by something or somebody, and then it prevents us from being able to recognize that which is good about them in us, even in a subjective or an objective manner, we just sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you think that's part of this? Yeah, I do think, I think um, we can be skewed by, you know, a host of factors, you know, how we understand goodness, what is goodness, even our own upbringing, you know, I didn't live in a good home, not me. I'm just saying someone, my, my parents were not good to me and so on and so forth. So all of those factors can influence how we define and interpret goodness. And I think, you were very spot on to bring goodness back to what are called the transcendentals. The transcendentals were those areas of metaphysics, aka philosophy, that dealt with, you know, these big concepts. And there was really essentially four transcendentals throughout all of philosophy, starting with the Greeks, going to the Romans, and then, of course, entering in the Christian realm. And transcendentals are simply simplicity or unity, the oneness of, of thought and ideas and AKA God, truth, beauty, and goodness. So truth, beauty, and goodness are what they would say in philosophy, the transcendentals. And why they call them transcendentals is because they transcend any one culture, person, place, mm-hmm. ideas, or things. They are really attributes of God that we have focused on. So as example, one plus one is two here in America. One plus one is two in China. One plus one is two in France. And in one plus one equals two has been the same throughout, you know, human history. Right. It's true because it transcends nature and, and time. And goodness has been seen on a similar factor. Mm-hmm. If I go help a baby who has fallen into a lake in water and I put myself in danger, let's say it's cold water, to jump in the water, to retrieve the baby from the water, that is considered an act of goodness. And that is an act of goodness in most cases. Now, obviously in today's context, in today's world, we try to convolute it and saying, well, did the baby have a disease? And maybe it wasn't good. And maybe you saved the baby because his parents were bad and they threw it in the water and all of these type of things. But the actual act of saving a helpless child from freezing cold water would be deemed an act of goodness, you know, throughout, throughout most history, most, most cultures and so on and so forth. But so you get the idea that trans these, they're called transcendentals because they transcend different categories and things. But for the Christian, we're not so much concerned about it being transcending philosophically, though it's, it's an interesting correlation, something to, to ponder. 
but our connection goes back to the goodness of God. And that's the question. Yeah. How do we know that God is good? And here's the, the basic answer that I would tell people. Number one, scripture says God is good. So, <laughs> right. so, so the Bible itself, the book, one of the books tells us that God is good. And we can go literally from Genesis to Revelation and show either in specific use of the word good or its variations that God is good. He's benevolent. He's loving. That is found throughout Scripture. So Scripture tells us. Two, something that you alluded to, and I think it's important, is we could find it objectively in the world. And that objectivity of goodness is found in creation, going back to that point of Aquinas. Mm. There is something rather than nothing in this world. There's something rather yes. than nothing. And that something, that ontology, mm. the, its being, its existence, in and of itself shows a goodness on the part of a creator. So creation logically points to a creator. I look at my watch on my wrist and I go, well, someone invented this. Well, probably a lot of people. There was an engineer and then the mechanic and all of these other things that this watch came to be. So we look at something vastly more complex, such as the universe, the human brain, and all these other things. And we go, well, creation implies or assumes that there's, there's a creation. So it's ontology, the very fact that something is, points to a good God. Um, and, and, and so we have, if you will, the ontology of it and then or the science the the actual literal physicality of it yes and then you have the biblical record telling us that god's good but then the third one is very christological and i would say we know god is good because of jesus if jesus is the icon that's what paul uses is if he's the image of god as paul declares if he's god's picture on planet earth we look no further than him and go he was good you know and you could look at his life over and over how he treated the the least and the lost how he interacted with the hurting how at times he was on a crash collision course with religious people who <laughs> who were trying to you know do not nice things to people or or putting undue yoke and bondage on him so jesus was working from Yes, goodness, but righteousness and all these other things. And then the ultimate act. He was willing to go to the cross uh, on our behalf. He, he mm. you know, theologically took the punishment and the pain and the sorrow upon himself. Um, so we would look at Jesus as the prime example to show God's goodness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so Jesus is that keystone example to demonstrate that God's good. But I, I think those three work hand in hand. I, I absolutely agree. And I love how you brought that back to the, the Christology, because as you pointed out, the scriptures say the same type of division that we saw. Not only was he intrinsically good, but the Bible says that he went around doing good. Mm -hmm. And to see that perfectly encapsulated, Jesus himself says, I came to show you the Father. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, for whatever reason, a lot of times, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want it to be misunderstood. 
We get so caught up in what Jesus has done, and rightfully so, that we sometimes do not catch the fact that everything Jesus did, he did at the behest of the Father, Mm -hmm. that it was to reconcile us to his Father. And so since we can see Jesus was not only good on earth, but his good on earth, according to him, clearly was telling us about the good of the Father. So just to encapsulize everything we've sort of talked about up to this point is so that everybody's tracking with us. We can take the claims of the Word of God at face value. We can take the life of Jesus Christ as not just a historical fact, but also a biblical fact. But for the person out there, the persons out there who may be asking this question, your epistemology of good becomes extremely important as to whether or not you're going to get an answer for this question that is an accurate one. Mm-hmm. If you do not, if you isolate yourself from that which is objectively good in mm-hmm. the environment, you've cut yourself off. You've cut yourself off from so much that is a witness to you of who God is. Mm-hmm. Number one, if you cut yourself off from the witness of Scripture, you've cut yourself off from the only existing testimony of what God has to say. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who said it, but it said, Jesus is what God has to say. And this is obviously a good utterance. This is, you know, speaking very broadly. And so one must expand their definition of good to include all that is the ontological, Mm -hmm. but they also must expand their willingness to recognize good beyond the scope of their personal emotions, to be able to see things for what they actually are, Mm -hmm. not just what I feel them to be. Mm -hmm. Good is something more than that. And in that context, I think, based on many of the things you've articulated, Brian, someone can get an answer to this question that gives them evidence that mm-hmm. God is good, something that's tangible, something that's written, something that's visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unquestionably. I think that was a, a, a very nice summary, and, and that's how I would summarize it. I would say, we know God is good because of ontology, because of creation, because of w- there's something then that there's not, and inherently found within all the facets of existence, it points back in an objective way to to not only a creator, but to a good creator who puts yes. something into being. Then secondly, you know, what we talked about, that scripture clearly delineates and declares that God is good. But then the picture of goodness, the living yes. example of goodness is Jesus. Now, now we could really get anthropomorphic in this, and right. we could then say, okay, go back to, let's say, a classical Greek or a Roman idea of ethics. And what actually is a good act? And that in ethics is a whole nother field that explores what actually is a good act. We don't have time on this program <laughs> right. to unpack ethics and the pros and cons. But for anyone interested, you know, I would recommend Norm Geisler's book on Christian ethics mm. that that really explores what goodness is and defining, you know, ethics the same as morals or morals, you know, different. It it explores all of those. But when we're talking about the very human-centric, anthropomorphic understanding of of goodness and what it means to to do good, it delves into the field of ethics. And I know, Luke, as you do, we've sat through many philosophy and and logic classes and situation <laughs> ethics where, you know, you're put in a quandary, you know, and, you know, well, what's the right, you know, wh- is there ever a good time to lie? And then, well, well, no, lying's wrong. You know, shall not, well, these biblical writers uh, lied. 
you know, these and, and all these quandaries. Plato are, with his noble lie. Right? A, a, exactly. All <laughs> of these, all of these examples are out there. Again, we don't have time to unpack them here. But what we can say is that because God is good and he created a good creation from Genesis, therefore we echo that goodness when we participate with God in the world. So human goodness is intricately related to creation, which is from the creator. So we are participants in the goodness of God, and therefore we are called to do good. But again, going back, the ultimate example of how we're to act and be good is when God came and said, here's what you do. It looks a lot like Jesus. Absolutely excellent. And you mentioned Geisler, and he he actually talks about this a little bit in his Unshakable Foundations book, too. And it's mentioned in reference to the Nuremberg Laws mm-hmm. about how that can affect the way that people think where a society gets together and they decide for themselves when you divorce the idea of morality and goodness from human practice, you derive, you basically throw God out the window and say, no, we together get to, we get together and create a consensus about what we think is good. Mm-hmm. And the Nuremberg trials, of course, the lesson was clearly that you have a responsibility that goes beyond what you and your society may have decided was good. There's something larger than that. There's something bigger than that. And you had your con, you knew you were doing something that was wrong, even if you all together agreed to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and again, this isn't a, a program to look to talk about the various understandings of truth, but you know, that's basically a societal truth claim. Just because the society says this is our law doesn't make it the right law doesn't make it a true law. Um, so, you know, there's cultural truth, there's society truth, there's personal I truth, and then there's biblical truth, true truth. And so the Christian's job or the person seeking to please the Lord, our, our task is to seek first the kingdom of God. And what, what's God's understanding of this? Not so much what our society says, because our society has proven to be wrong. And we know people have been proven to be wrong. So we have to look to that eternal, that broader truth in order to make sense of the world. If we don't, we are in big problems. Because what if your truth is diametrically opposed to mine? What if your truth is it's okay to steal from people? That's my truth. That's how I get along. I steal. Well, my truth is, no, you don't steal. And then someone else's truth is not only do you not steal, I cut the arms off of people who steal. And then you're going, okay, there's three different worldviews here. We need a higher set of truth. But again, going back to the characteristics and attributes of God. So that's truth. But God is also goodness. So we have to look to the higher standard, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. You know, (laughs) the capital T truth. Go back to the higher standard of truth, not your society, not your culture, not your personal preferences, your subjective understanding. But what does God say? through his creative order and his written order, the Bible. It's, it's so excellent. So just to finalize as we're wrapping up here, you know, we've looked at objective truth. We looked at why some people are unable to feel or to connect with a, a subject of goodness and that they need to be aware of how their emotions may be biasing them against something that's good that God has done. And then we've looked at how maybe societal pressure mm-hmm. can make someone think that what they thought was good may not be good, and that the only refuge from all of those things is to go back to the authority of the Word of God 
and the things which the Word of God is a witness to about those things that came from the hand of God, the, mm-hmm. the creation of nature. So with those things in hand, to answer that question, how do we know that God is good? Not only have you pointed them to a resource where they can dig into some of the deeper questions if they, they want to go there, but I would say this question is probably best simply answered because it does require a perspective shift. Someone would not ask this question if they had not in some way, shape, or form been put into a place where they have been cut off by something that prevents them from recognizing what's there. Mm -hmm. And so what we would recommend is be willing to open your eyes to all the goodness that God has put into the world. By cutting yourself off from that which you think is evil, you may be cutting yourself off. You know, if you just isolate yourself, you're cutting yourself off from everything, including that which is good. And it's difficult to feel that witness if you've removed everything that witnesses to you. So we'd we'd recommend opening your eyes to these different things. Check out that book if you want to dig a little bit deeper. But ultimately, be willing first to trust the Word of God and take it for what it says. Mm -hmm. And especially if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, it's going to be impossible to really see everything that he's done as what it is unless you first come to him and let him open your eyes. Mm -hmm. So even though we take for granted that many of our listeners, if not all of our listeners, have accepted Christ, if you haven't, this is where goodness begins, is by accepting the testimony of God through his Son. And so we would invite you to do that. And of course, we've already had the verse of John 3.16, but the Bible says this, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that these things are true, you say, what things? Well, the Bible says, if you believe that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you trust in him to do that. He'll literally save you. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they're like, well, how do I trust in a God that I don't know if he's good or not? You have, that's a decision of faith. The Bible says that he is. You must come to that, and you must be willing to accept that. And you'll find in its acceptance that everything about it becomes true in your life as you are willing to observe that first principle. So as we end this question, great question. Brian, did you have anything else to say no, before gr- we wrap great, it up? No, great, beautiful summary, and uh, hopefully it answered it. And, and again, look into resources. You know, we've we've mentioned Norm Geisler, and and there's plenty. You could even get Norm Geisler's shorter book. His ethics is pretty substantial. But you could get, um, you know, If God, Why Evil, which deals mm-hmm. with God's goodness and evil and so on and so forth. So there's lots of resources out there. Excellent. Definitely appreciate that. So as you know, if you would like to have your questions answered, by all means, reach out to us here at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. That's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. And once again, till next time, God bless and thank you for listening.